This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe your school had a nurse when you were a kid. Well, in Denver, three schools now have a drug abuse counselor on site. We'll meet one of these therapists shortly. First, a new report offers a bleak picture of drug addiction and deaths by overdose in Colorado. Here's the story from health reporter John Daly. Here in Colorado, the crisis mirrors the national picture. To see how, I visited somewhere you can see the true cost of it, a coroner's office. So this is our autopsy suite. Dr. Kelly Lear-Call is the Arapahoe County coroner. She shows me an autopsy room where her team works to determine the cause and manner of someone's death. She opens the door to a large cooler. On stainless steel gurneys inside heavy-duty black plastic bags, a pair of bodies await autopsy. Loud fans cool the temperature to 42 degrees. Still, the room has a nauseating odor. Last year, Lear Call saw 100 drug overdose deaths. We see a lot of them, and they fill up the gurneys. The county's drug overdose rate has doubled from 15 years ago. Lear Call tells me about three-quarters of the cases involve prescription painkillers like oxycodone, an opioid medication better known by names like Percocet or OxyContin. She says some families are not surprised. They say, oh yeah, he's been groggy and I know he took too many or he kept going back to his pill bottle. So it's not a surprise for a lot of people. For some it is, definitely. Some families are in denial, she says, or sometimes they just don't know, like the case of one man with a history of chronic pain. He was not getting them from a doctor. He was getting them from another person who was providing them. And his family didn't know that, and it was a total surprise. It's a pretty grim tally. That's Tamara Keeney. She's a policy analyst at the Colorado Health Institute. It just released the analysis of the state's drug-related deaths. The big surprise for me really came when we mapped the data. She's talking about CDC data on drug overdose deaths in Colorado specifically. She shows me a map on a monitor. It changes color based on annual statistics. County by county, it darkens from pinks to reds as drug-related deaths go up. No county in the state gets any lighter. In fact, 12 of the counties, most of them rural but also including Denver, have among the highest rate of drug deaths in the country. What we saw that was really striking to us is that rarely do we see a health metric that moves so quickly and is so widespread. Rob Valak is a pharmacy professor at the University of Colorado and heads a state consortium on drug abuse prevention. The CDC characterizes it as one of the top four epidemics facing the United States right now at the level of cancer, obesity, and heart disease. And just recently, it overtook motor vehicle accidents as another leading cause of death. He says for the most recent year with data available, around 900 Coloradans died. Why is it happening? Valak says lots of reasons. Overprescription of painkillers like Vicodin or Percocet is one thing, but these medications can also interact badly with other drugs. It's just more common than people think, and they're more powerful than people think. It's a complex problem. That's Shannon Breitzman, who heads the division that monitors prescription drug abuse with the state health department. She says one major problem is people not properly disposing of legitimately prescribed but leftover pills. So they pop them in their medicine cabinet. They're not locked. Somebody comes along and takes them, family members, kids, and then diverts them, uses them for themselves or sells them to other people or shares them with other people. She adds the epidemic disproportionately affects men aged 25 to 55. This is something Karen Hill knows all too well. In her Aurora home, Hill shows me a chest filled with mementos from her son, JP. Um, 
this stuff is all from the funeral. JP was 26 when he died a little over three years ago. He'd previously taken prescription meds recreationally. At the time of his death, he was on anti-anxiety medication that was causing insomnia. He found some hydrocodone prescribed for his grandmother and took a single dose, they think, to help him sleep. The combination killed him. At first, we didn't know. We were completely confused. But I am 100% convinced now that it was unintentional. Hill says JP was tall, fit, fun-loving, and a huge football fan. The shock of his death motivated the family to form a nonprofit foundation to build public awareness. We need to do something about this and keep other families from going through what we are. Nobody's aware of it. They're taking their message around the state, including the rural areas, where the numbers have gone up so dramatically. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Well, there are also concerns about drug abuse in schools. Denver Health has been flooded with referrals for kids who need treatment, so much so that it has sent three addiction counselors to offer drug treatment on campus. Amanda Ingram is one of them. She's a substance abuse therapist at Bruce Randolph, a school in northeast Denver. And Amanda, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So Bruce Randolph serves grades 6 through 12. Denver Health has also placed counselors at South High and North High. What are you seeing at Bruce Randolph in terms of addiction? We're seeing a high acuity of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, severe depression. Um, We're seeing high anxiety. We're seeing a lot of um, uh, ADHD. And what's happening is these um, students don't know how to cope with this. They've never received treatment before. And so they're um, self-medicating with marijuana or other substances. And what ends up happening is they become so acute and low-functioning that they would never actually make it to a clinic to receive help. So we have come to them. So by going into the schools, they're able to access therapy during the school day when they normally would never receive any services like that. And how long does therapy last? Is that an hour in the day they take a class off or what? Yeah, so they miss one class a week. So it's one hour a week. And for our more acute clients, sometimes we see them more than once a week. It just depends on their need. How young are they? Um, My youngest is 11 and my oldest is 19. Without getting into specifics or naming names, why does an 11-year-old turn to drugs. Can you can you comment on that? Yeah, case definitely. It's it's pretty heartbreaking, but um you know, the 11-year-olds on my caseload have a history of child abuse, neglect, um you know, a history of family gang involvement. They've seen some pretty horrific things in their life and their poor little nervous system doesn't know how to handle it. And your brain doesn't stop growing till you're 25, so they've got no frontal lobe. They're not really sure how to process all this and maybe um, it's very normal in their family culture to use substances, and then so that's what they end up um, self-medicating with. Of course, if it's a question of the home that is resulting in PTSD and a lot of anxiety, uh, I suppose all the therapy in the world won't change things if the home situation doesn't change. Correct. We, we try very hard to get families in for family therapy. That's something that we're um, in, you know, we know that we need to change the family system and help the family system. In John's report, there was a lot of talk of opioid abuse. Yes. Are you seeing prescription painkiller abuse, and are you seeing it increase? Definitely. So what's happening is um, you could say that (laughs) the thrill is gone, unfortunately, with marijuana. And so um, a lot of our students are upping the ante, so to say, and they're starting to use more um, 
something a little stronger, once they get used to marijuana, um, the next step would be Percocet, Oxy, and then graduating onto heroin use, which is very sad. And you've seen heroin use at Bruce Randolph? Um, I have seen Percocet, um, not heroin use yet. And I just started in August, so... The, the, the fear, of course, is that one graduates from one to the other. Right. The kind of graduation you don't want at a school by any means. What does the therapy look like? What 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 is the modality that you use? So we use cognitive behavioral therapy, helping students identify what triggers them to use and the thoughts and the feelings that lead to that use. And then we also help them correct their um, irrational thoughts with more rational thoughts, feelings, and then coping skills that they can replace that drug use with. And I also use animal-assisted therapy. You, in fact, have a dog, I think a therapy dog. Yes, I have a therapy dog that comes to work with me every day. How does that help um, a kid who may be addicted? So, for example, um, they can put uh, treats on her head and her paws, and she doesn't eat them until they say okay. And so she's sitting there drooling, and she's having a lot of delayed gratification and very good self-control. And then we talk about how they can use delayed gratification and how they can practice some self-control. How often are families invested in the treatment? I would say less than 50% of the time families are invested and involved, which is very sad. And does that make treatment extraordinarily difficult? You know, um, I'm actually surprised with the scores. Every four weeks, we test everyone for depression, anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, everything under the sun. And their scores just plummet. It's amazing. No matter if their family's involved or not, their scores go from severe to mild just after four weeks. Even if the families aren't involved. Correct. So you can make a difference. Yeah. But I suppose the plummet might be even bigger, though, if families are oh, involved. Oh, yes. By far, it would be much bigger if the families were involved. You've mentioned marijuana several times. To what extent does the legalization of recreational marijuana play into this, do you believe? Oh, it's huge. You know, in 2004, I think we were 14th in the nation. And now in 2013, we were third in the nation in terms of youth using marijuana, which is 56% higher than the national average since we legalized marijuana. This is a very controversial subject, mm-hmm. the notion of marijuana as a gateway to other drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of debate has happened around that. What is your perception of that on the ground in Bruce Randolph? You know, what I'm hearing from the children is that um, it's legal, it's okay to use now, it's also natural, and because it's legal and their families and adult friends are using it, they feel like it's justified. And what they're doing is they're using so much of it now that they're kind of getting bored with it and graduating onto something stronger. And this is just what I'm seeing in Bruce Randolph alone. I can't speak for the state of Colorado. That is your experience. Mm -hmm. Do you think that more schools need substance abuse counselors on site? Oh, definitely. Denver Health has several therapists in Denver Public Schools, and those therapists are noticing a huge need. And so um, Dr. Thurstone, who's my supervisor, is applying, he's writing several grants and applying for more funding. Are there incentives of some kind that you can use when you work with kids? Definitely. So um, we have the therapy dog, which is a great incentive. We also have um, cash prizes. So they they provide a urine drug screen every week. And if they get clean urine drug screens, they can draw um, tickets out of a bowl. And some of those tickets say they win money and some of them say they they don't win any money. And so it's kind of a lottery, but getting clean urine drug screens is incentivized with gift cards. If the urine is not clean, what are the penalties? Um, 
there's really um, just the penalty of not winning as much money as they could win if they had clean urine drug screens. They still get to draw a couple tickets out of the bowl for doing pro-social activities and proving that they've done those pro-social activities, like bringing a movie stub or a picture of them playing basketball with friends, just to prove that they've done something pro-social that has nothing to do with getting high on marijuana. Do you pair young people to support each other? Definitely. Um, I'm getting a lot of referrals of groups of friends. And so if they don't have family support, what we do is we bring in a peer for support. And what I'm noticing is that um, they really care about what their peers think of them. And so they become much more motivated after we've done a a peer um, therapy session. And so peer pressure may have gotten them into this and you're hoping it can get them out. Right. Yes. To what extent do you um, interact with law enforcement And, I mean, obviously, drug use is illegal in children of this age Mm -hmm. and uh, and given some of these substances in any age. Do you have a line to law enforcement? What's your responsibility there? Yes. So um, everything is confidential. I do have clients that will um, bring paraphernalia to school and even bring marijuana to school and other drugs, and they will give it up to me anonymously. And I will hand it over to the officer that works at the school, and he will dispose of it. And that way, the child... um, doesn't get penalized for it. Why shouldn't the child be penalized? They really are motivated to um, enter recovery, and they're motivated to um, really just try and use these pro-social behaviors and these pro-social coping skills. And so I, we really don't want them to be penalized or punished for um, stepping forward and saying, here's, you know, I'm giving up this illegal substance. I want to change for the better. Is there ever a moment you would involve law enforcement directly with a child? Um, Only if they report that there's child abuse going on in the home or if they're suicidal or homicidal. Everything else is, you know, we're we're very supportive and we just try to be um, positive. There is the question of what happens once they graduate from Bruce Randolph and whether that care can continue. Mm -hmm. So we have a clinic at Denver Health. So um, the three of us that have moved into the schools are from the STEP program at Denver Health, and they take patients up to 24 years old. So if they want continuing outpatient treatment, they can definitely go to the STEP program on the Denver Health campus. Do you see kids who are going through withdrawal? Oh, definitely. And and then have to cope with that and school? Yes. Yeah, so I do a lot of psychoeducation with the teachers. Um, If the kid gives me permission to talk to their teachers, then um, I can definitely help the teachers know, you know, what's going on with the kid and how they can help them best in class. Do you find yourself daunted by this job sometimes? Oh, yes. <laughs> this is my first time working in a school, and it's the most acute population I've ever worked with. I, I was not expecting to see kids in such dire need of help. Amanda, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Amanda Ingram. She's a substance abuse therapist for Denver Health, and she works out of Bruce Randolph High School in Denver. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Colorado Environmental Film Festival is this weekend in Golden, and one of the entries is just 90 seconds long. Old Skill New Use offers a glimpse into the world of primitive living. Doug Hill of Lafayette is the filmmaker. He also lives this lifestyle. He has been dubbed a MacGyver of the woods. He founded his uh, primitive skill school, Gone Feral, some time ago. He also teaches survival and bow carving classes at Red Rocks Community College. Doug, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. Will you give me some examples of primitive skills that you have honed and teach 
to others. Sure, absolutely. Um, I think the perfect example is uh, fire making. And uh, a primitive version of that would be rubbing two sticks together, a bow drill or hand drill. Uh, bow carving is another example, or hide tanning, tanning the hides of animals in a traditional way. What drew you to this and what draws others to it? Wow, that's a great, great question. Um, it's uh, For me, it was a long road. I think uh, growing up, using my hands a lot, spending a lot of time outdoors, it was always sort of a, an interest in older skills and technology. Um, I went through a phase of, of searching for a long time and um, eventually, I think, found a lot of the, the answers I was looking for in a more uh, natural outdoor lifestyle. Um, and I think uh, for a lot of people that come to it, uh, the same is true. They're, they're um, looking for something, um, uh, perhaps want to be more self-reliant, more um, connected, uh, just more um, something that is, is answered with, with the study of these old ways. You were homeless for a time, weren't you? Uh, I was. I, I think um, it was here in Colorado. I think, uh, you know, um, living outdoors in Colorado under the stars uh, in the springtime is what some people would call vacation. In fact, a lot of people come here for that. But through a variety of circumstances, uh, a number of years ago, I did find myself on the street. Was that a, a pivotal time in terms of your desire to be self, self-sustaining, self-sufficient? It was certainly pivotal from the standpoint of you know, sleeping every night under an open sky and seeing the sunrise every morning. And it was, uh, I think, very important in my the formation of who I am today um, in that connection and just kind of seeing those those rhythms of the natural world uh, in a way that we we don't when we live in a uh, house under a roof all the time. And in no way do I want to glamorize homelessness, sure. uh, but it gave you some perspective. Mm-hmm. Would you describe living primitively as um, a, a kind of hobby? So something you do alongside your modern life? Is it a permanent way of living? Is it just a set of skills? That's a, another great question, Ryan. I, I think um, that's that's the big picture of, of what's the hope, you know, in teaching this. And are we all going to re- return to a Stone Age way of life and live as hunter-gatherers? No, of course not. But I think there's a lot of lessons that come away from that in uh, what we learn from um, paying closer attention to the cycles of the seasons by having a closer relationship with the the materials and the resources we extract from the planet. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, um, if you uh, hunt an animal, eat the meat, tan the hide and make clothes out of it, that's a very different relationship with that article of clothing than, than buying a pair of jeans at the store for $40 and, and, and just abusing them. So I think there's a lot of takeaway lessons without uh, leaving a modern life. I, I absolutely live a modern life. I keep my website updated. Uh, I, I have a smartphone. Um, but there's, I think, a lot of overlap and parallels that we can uh, connect the two. So you indeed moved to Colorado, I think, in 2007. And you eventually got part-time work mm-hmm. and were able to uh, get off the streets. You were involved in Boulder's environmental education scene interned with a primitive skills practitioner named Robin Blankenship near Crestone. Mm -hmm. And you say that uh, that gave you the confidence to start your own primitive and outdoor skills school gone feral. That's correct. You teach people the big three. What are, what's the big three? So the big three, um, it's largely considered, um, you know, if you consider that for 
by far the large majority of human history was spent in the Stone Age, over 99% of human history. And, and the big three inventions or innovations are considered being able to create a sharp edge from stone, um, creating fire, and creating cordage or rope from natural plant materials. Those three innovations or inventions um, by human ancestors really set us on that fast track to become the dominant species on the planet, to eventually put us on the moon, and just to really put us where we are on the planet today. And yet, if you ask 10 people to do all three of those, some number of them might not be able to, I suppose. Uh, you know, we are a pretty ingenious spe- species, and I think a lot of people can figure it out. But I think you're absolutely right. We've lost it in a in a whole kind of way as a society these days. There may be some listening who think this is quaint, um, a, a kind of a version of, you know, being a Luddite or something. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them? Try it. <laughs> Come join me for a class. Um, there's There's absolutely nothing like the first time you create a fire by rubbing two sticks together. If you've seen the movie Cast Away when Tom Hanks jumps around screaming on the beach. It's, it's kind of like that. Um, and so, uh, I think we don't make fire and, and do these types of things without coming away changed. So it's, it's certainly could be looked at that way from the outside, but I think, um, uh, you know, um, once again, doing it, living it, um, making those materials for yourself is, uh, is just something that can't be told. It has to be experienced. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and this weekend is the Colorado Environmental Film Festival in Golden. And one of the entries that caught our attention is a film called Old Skill, New Use, uh, a film made by Doug Hill of Lafayette, and it offers a glimpse into the world of living primitively and of acquiring those skills. This is something that Doug Hill teaches others. Do you have more examples of what you teach? Sure. Um, now, I do teach both primitive and survival skills. Um, the, the big distinction really being your goal and the methods how you get there. Survival, of course, being you just want to get home um, and it doesn't matter how you get there. Uh, the, the primitive piece is more, you might think of it as more sustainable. You can't you know, chop down the whole forest to survive because then you have no resources to rely on. So, um, but in terms of specific examples, um, uh, fire making, bow carving are eternally popular ones. Um, people want to be able to, uh, make their, uh, the tools and things they need right off the land. So that includes stone tools, um, a whole variety of other tools made from bone and antler and wood. And, uh, uh, and those things, I think, Specific classes this year include uh, shelter building, a week-long primitive course. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, and in a week-long primitive course, do you go out into the into the woods? We do. Yes, I. Um, most of the courses uh, run at our field school, uh, which is about 300 acres up north of Ward. And um, for a week-long course like that, we um, we don't expect people to come in with the skills needed to just go out there and do this. So it starts from the beginning, and um, but goes through uh, in in essentially the wilderness, nice and close to home, but goes through all these skills in a, a wilderness setting. I suppose Colorado is a particularly good place to do this, given the the hiking culture, the camping culture, the outdoor culture. Uh, it is. Um, of course, there's some things we have to be really careful of, including fire. Um, we've seen some pretty horrific uh, impacts of fire in recent years, and that's something that's always on on my mind with um, just making sure we're being safe and ethical with how we practice these things. I was scanning your Gone Feral website, and I loved this one tip that you have for people. When you get stuck for the night outdoors, sit the hell down <laughs> is a rule that you have. That's right. Tell uh, me about that rule. Yeah, I uh, I use the uh, 
kind of in monic STFD and uh, sit the hell down. The F is silent. Um, <laughs> okay. So thank but, you for keeping a G sure. rated. <laughs> we um, we uh, you, you know we it's what almost anybody would tell you is is when you're lost, just sit down and collect yourself. Um, we have a tendency if we wander, we'll actually walk in circles um, and make it harder for searchers to find you. So the best thing you can do is stay in one place um, and and make a go of it there. And then this was odd, but one of your tips is sleep. Yes. As if you had to tell people to sleep. Well, you know, um, one of the, the, we expend a huge amount of calories in, in a survival situation. And one of the best things you can do to both keep yourself calm, but also, uh, be efficient with uh, your calories is to just sleep. You need that restful sleep. So everything you can do, uh, should funnel into keeping you calm and uh, get restful sleep. Right, burning less energy. Mm-hmm. And exactly. pa- panic is not necessarily that. You know. Exactly. You've been asked to be on a Discovery Channel show called Naked and Afraid several times, and it drops two strangers in the wilderness with nothing but a small pack, a camera, and I think one survival item of their choosing. And you have turned down this opportunity uh, because you say shows like that really focus more on the survivalist skills that you mentioned earlier. Say more about why you don't take part. You know, I, I think I, I I love the idea behind a challenge for, I think it's three weeks uh, with Naked and Afraid. Um, but I find that most of the shows today are so sensational. Um, I'd be interested in more of an educational type of TV show. Thank you for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Doug Hill is a primitive skills instructor who lives in Lafayette, and his short film is called Old Skill, New Use which screens at the Colorado Environmental Film Festival this weekend in Golden. You can find tips from Hill on how to survive a night in the wilderness at cprnews.org. On Monday, we'll hear from survival expert Kat Bigney, who spent months living as our ancestors did millions of years ago. She's featured in a new reality TV show on the National Geographic Channel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A masterpiece of modern architecture is how Steve Turner describes the conservatory at the Denver Botanic Gardens. It's that really recognizable geometric building. Turner leads historic preservation for the state, and he joined me at the gardens as that building turns 50. Steve, thanks for meeting us here. Great to be here, Ryan. I really appreciate the invitation. This building, which is officially called the Betcher Memorial Tropical Conservatory, Opened in 1966. It's the only greenhouse in the country, I understand, made of cast-in-place concrete. And uh, we're standing outside, I'll say, because the fans that help keep it so hot and humid inside are awfully loud. Uh, But describe this building for us. You know, it's the bones of like a dinosaur or something like that. It's these fairly complex, beautiful structure. It's made out of concrete because the primary donor, the Betchers, made a lot of their money in concrete. So ah, this was a made self-serving, maybe. Right, right. <laughs> so this was made in concrete to celebrate the fact that these were folks who made, as I said, made their one of their fortunes in concrete. And uh, there's kind of an interesting story there. Betcher was uh, really the original money was in sugar beets, and he was building a sugar beet factory and decided that the cost of importing concrete was just entirely too expensive. So he started his own concrete factory. And one thing led to another, and he was highly successful in that also. That is to say, if concrete is too expensive, make your own. Exactly, okay. exactly. And so there, there's concrete, and then that, that web-like structure leaves a lot of space for light to come in. And right. is that glass? Is it plexiglass? It's, what is it's that? It's plexiglass. And the, uh, the interesting thing is one of the things they had to do is they built the framework. And when you build in concrete, the first thing you have to do is you form it 
you've kind of formed the negative of what you're trying to build out of wood. And you then pour the concrete in there and the, into the wood frame, and it will harden. And uh, the architects were talking about when they first built this, people actually thought that the greenhouse was going to be made out of wood. They didn't realize that they were just looking at the framing. But they finished that, and then they came in, and they had to form the plexiglass panels. And they had to wait till they were completed because each one is slightly different, and each one required really a custom measurement of the form once it was put in place to make the plexiglass panels exactly the right size. You can see a photo, by the way, of this at cprnews.org. And maybe you remember this building from the 1973 movie by Woody Allen, Sleeper. It was filmed in and around Denver, and uh, there's a glimpse in that film. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I think people maybe don't understand about our architectural heritage here in Denver. We have this incredibly rich heritage of modernist buildings. And so when Woody Allen was getting ready to do Sleeper, his original desire was to actually go to Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, which is a very, very modern master plan city. But budgets sort of interceded and they decided they wanted a more affordable locale. And they ended up here so that they could use what's become known as the sleeper house, the well-known house you see as you go out to the ski areas on I-70. This building, IMPA's research lab up in Boulder, a number of those buildings looked to Woody Allen, what he imagined the future would look like. And this was absolutely one of them. And, I and in 66, when it opened, it must have just been out of this world. Oh, I think it was immediately recognized as the true landmark it is. I think that's evidenced by the fact that, in fact, in 1973, just seven years after it was built, it became a Denver landmark. That's highly unusual. Usually we wait 30 to 50 years to be sure we really understand the architectural significance of a particular structure. But in this case, it didn't take very much time. People right away said, this is going to be an important piece of architecture for years, and we want to protect it. The architects were Victor Hornbein and Ed White. What should we know about them? Well, they are probably two of the most significant contemporary architects that we've had Uh, that have practiced here in Colorado. There are really interesting things about both of them. They had sort of different tracks in life. Victor Hornbein started out doing very sort of traditional kind of what's called Beaux-Arts architecture. In fact, he worked for the architect that did the Mayan theater, doing some of the decoration that you'll see in that theater. Which has a very heavy decorative hand. Absolutely, absolutely. Unlike this building entirely. No, there is some. Once you walk into the building, you do see some really beautiful decoration carved into some of the concrete work. But this is a very minimalist modern building. And I think part of that came from in the 19... 30s, Victor Hornbein worked for the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, mm-hmm. and worked specifically under a architect named Earl Morris. And Earl had been a student of Frank Lloyd Wright, and I think he really introduced Frank Lloyd Wright's sort of architectural philosophy to Victor, and Victor became this great student of it. In fact, uh, I'm not from Denver. When I first moved to Denver, I saw one of Hornbein's building, which is the Ross library down on Broadway. And I thought immediately, this has to be the building of someone who studied under 
Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh-huh. And it, it was interesting to me to learn that, in fact, he never did study under Frank Lloyd Wright. But he but was certainly influenced. By absolutely him. influenced and adopted his style and uh, I think really mastered this sort of organic philosophy that Frank Lloyd Wright brought to his architecture. Do you see Frank Lloyd Wright in the conservatory at the Denver Botanic Gardens? I see a number of architectural influences in the conservatory, but especially when you come into the front and you see some of the horizontal planes of the buildings that are attached to the conservatory and some of the complicated geometric ornament, that really is Frank Lloyd Wright. In fact, I would argue that the form that you see, the concrete itself, is really complex, very sort of organic geometry that would have been something that Frank Lloyd Wright would have completely understood and probably would have done himself had he been designing this particular building. Well, Victor Hornbein died in 1995. He was 82. Ed White Jr., his partner here, is still alive at 91. And uh, just say a few words Mm -hmm. about Mr. White. I think part of what made this collaboration so successful is they really brought very different skill sets to their collaboration. Victor was this really masterful designer, and I, Ed White was too, but Ed White also had this incredible interest in historic preservation. And so many of the things that we take for granted here in Denver today, Ed White was really sort of at the forefront of in helping us save a number of historic buildings. He worked on the Molly Brown House. He worked on the uh, saving a number of the buildings up at Central City. So he both understood and I think valued contemporary architecture, but also really appreciated the past. Mm. One of my favorite things, though, about Ed White is Ed went to Columbia University, and while he was there, uh, he had the occasion to be introduced to Jack Kerouac. And I think one of the most interesting pieces of trivia about Ed White, uh, he convinced Jack Kerouac that he needed to come see Denver. And so, so Jack, <laughs> Which he did, as we know. Exactly. So Jack Kerouac came out here, had a number of adventures with Ed White. He ends up going up to Central City. They rent a house there that they live in for a while. He borrows a suit from Ed White. They go to the opera. They do a lot of drinking. They do all the things that are described in the book. and ultimately, uh, On the road. On, in the book, On the Road. And ultimately... Ed White makes an appearance. He is in the book under the name of Tim Gray. And I love that Ed White became mm. Tim Gray. I yes. just think that's just White kind of a great... Gray. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's just an amazing thing to think about this connection. And they continue the friendship well into Kerouac's death. And there are, I think, about 90 or so letters showing correspondence between the two of them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we've come to the Denver Botanic Gardens to gaze at the conservatory here. That's the geometric building that houses all those magnificent tropical plants. And we're learning that it has ties to Frank Lloyd Wright and Jack Kerouac and Woody Allen, and the list goes on. Steve Turner, you're the state's chief preservation officer, and I should point out that your office has awarded grants to the Botanic Gardens to help preserve this conservatory. What are some of the challenges of preserving this unusual building? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges is literally the material that it's made out of. This is not like if you're repairing an old Victorian uh, house that has an ornate wood porch and you might knock out one post on the porch and replace it. This is concrete and plexiglass, and these are materials that you can't just knock a piece out and put a new piece in. It's all of a piece. It's of a piece, exactly. And so what the Botanic Gardens is going to be doing over the course of the next year is working with an architect to 
come up with exactly what needs to be replaced and what needs to be repaired. And then they will be working on conserving some of the concrete, which is deteriorated, as well as some of the plexiglass that has uh, holes in it, in part from a hailstorm last year. One of the things, again, that I think was interesting is, is Hornbein wrote when this building opened that one of the advantages of building it out of concrete was that that was a maintenance-free material. What we've learned uh, in is a short really 50 no years, thing, there, is exactly, there? Is, yeah. there is no such thing as a maintenance-free material. And like all other materials, uh, there's some work to be done to ensure that this will be here 50 years from now. Well, at the risk of disparaging it, it looks a bit grimy. And maybe that's the nature of a building that has a lot of plexiglass. I think about, you know, how dirty my bathroom mirror gets, you know, and this is exposed to the elements. Do you think it's worn well? You know, I still think it has worn well. I agree with you that it it needs to be cleaned. As I look at it, I do see some staining. I see what may be, in some cases, some of the metal, the iron rebar that's inside the concrete rusting out and kind of uh, staining through the concrete. But... This building, to me, uh, is one of those buildings that everybody that sees it loves it. I don't think anybody looks at this building and inherently thinks there's a building that doesn't look well-maintained. I think people love the design. I think what it has done maybe better than almost any other modern building is it is an extremely approachable building. Mm. You know, that's part of the challenge, I think, with preserving contemporary or modern structures. People can look at Victorian houses or, or things from the turn of the century, and they're, they're just, there's no way to describe them other than just say they're kind of warm and fuzzy. You just want to go up and give them a big hug. Normally, people look at modern buildings, and it is, it's not unlike modern painters who would have painted abstract expressionist paintings. Some people get it, and some people don't. And, and some people and, associate it with being cold. Yes, exactly. Or, yeah, exactly. Or institutional. And I don't know anyone that looks at this building and doesn't just kind of fall in love with it. And I think that's even evidenced by the fact that it literally, the the silhouette of this building has become the logo for the Botanic Gardens. You look at the logo mm-hmm. of the Botanic Gardens and you know exactly what it is. It's this building. It's just so unique. You're in love with it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being with us. Take care. Steve Turner is the State Historic Preservation Officer. He'll take part in a panel discussion Friday night at the Botanic Gardens to mark the conservatory's 50th year. More information about that at cprnews.org, where we've also posted some photos of the building. Back in a moment on Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The owner of a popular Denver vegetarian restaurant is also a writer. Sidio City's Daniel Landis has a new graphic short story, sort of like a comic book. It's set in the early 1990s in the newly formed Czech Republic. Revolt to What is the story of a velvet revolutionary and a quiet traveler from Colorado. Landis collaborated with Denver illustrator Carl Christian Krumholz. And uh, Daniel, welcome to the program. It's nice to be here. Thank you. I understand you wrote the first draft of this story about two decades ago after a trip to Prague. Uh, Tell me about that trip. Well, I was traveling through Europe and I had been backpacking for about four months and decided to get to the Eastern Bloc countries right after the fall of the Iron Curtain. So I was actually there to see the Beastie Boys on their ill communication tour. So they had they were performing at some ice arena and I went to see them and then I stayed for almost a month after that. And you think of that as something as a, of a watershed because it's a big deal that a Western band was playing Right. There. Before that, the only Western band that had played in Prague um, was Rage Against the Machine, 
which is really interesting that that would be the first Western band to really pierce the wall. And then after that, the Beastie Boys. What struck you about Prague at that time, just after the wall fell? Uh, really the juxtaposition of the of the old culture, of the, the remnants of the communist era, and then the new capitalism, the new money that was infiltrating Prague was really, um, really powerful. So there was two distinct worlds. One was from the old world, and then one was the new capitalist world. This is a tension that makes it into your your graphic uh, short story. Uh, That is, you know, a revolution occurs, there's political change, and it paves the way for capitalism. And revolutionaries are left to ask, is this what we wanted? Is this what we fought for? Yeah, exactly. That's the existential crisis that our hero Peter goes through is that he fought and his grandfather fought and his father fought for um, a free Czech Republic, for a free Czechoslovakia. Um, And then they get it. And once they get it, they didn't quite understand, particularly Peter didn't quite understand what was waiting for him on the other side of the wall. And what was waiting was a bunch of money coming in to scoop up the cheap real estate and and put in concepts that were proven in other places and basically to exploit, in a sense, the new Prague. And yet money and investment, all of that is what the Eastern Bloc countries were thirsting for as well, wasn't it? I think so. And when you are... Um, when you have... You're in a position to take advantage of that investment... That's great. But and some of my characters in this story were there. They were perched to take advantage of the investment. But Peter, who really got bludgeoned in the Velvet Revolution, he was the one that spilled blood for this revolution. And he has no access to the to the success that Prague is feeling. This story has been simmering, percolating in you for a long time now. Why was why was this the moment to, to write this? Well, I really thought about the again, the existential crisis that Peter was going through as he was sitting in his city, the one that he knew, the one that he loved, the one that he fought for, and then was dealing with this new influx of people. And of course... Gosh, that sounds like Denver. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things, the the parallels that I made was the legalization of, of marijuana in Denver. It was something that people fought very, very hard for, and they it finally becomes legal. And then what? And then... There was a whole new influx of, of people and, and this, the cityscape changed. So it was very much a moment where I felt um, a solidarity with Peter. Um, and I wanted to tell this as a, a parable of, of what happens when you fight for something and then it happens. Post-revolutionary Prague as a metaphor for post-pot Denver. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, very. We're speaking with Daniel Landis, who has... Uh, penned the new graphic short novel, Revolt to What? Uh, The artist in this case is uh, Carl Christian Krumpholz, who is also from Denver. Uh, You've hinted at this, but you talk about monoculture as well in this story. And you believe that that artists play a role in that. What is monoculture in your mind? Um, I suppose monoculture is something that I experienced when I traveled to New York City when I was in the early 80s. And I experienced culture shock. The culture from where I'm from in Denver to New York City was a culture shock. I took my kids to New York City in 2012 from Denver to New York City, and they didn't experience culture shock. 
because what's happening in New York and so much is happening in Denver is so much happening in LA is so much happening in Dallas and Austin that there is sort of a monoculture that's existing in all of these cities that the uniqueness of a city is pretty much whitewashed at some point um, when you have the same stores, the same box stores, the same chain stores anywhere you go, things start to look the same. So a monoculture to me is when there's a lack of diversity of small businesses that really reflect the interior culture of the city itself. You obviously come at this as a small business owner, yes. um, as owner of City, a city, a pretty popular restaurant in Denver. And I suppose that that was true as well for those revolutionaries in Czechoslovakia than the Czech Republic, uh, this idea that they opened the gates to more of a monoculture, right? I guess. Well, I think that they I think what happens is when you come into a new environment and you have money to spend and you have things that you want to develop, but you didn't take the time to really listen to what the culture of the place that you're moving into, then you're homogenizing that culture with your outside influence before you actually get to know where you are. And I see that a lot in um, I saw that in Prague in the early 90s. And I see that in Denver now where there's a, a rush to build and define before there's a patience to listen and learn. And yet it could be argued that the ultimate monoculture is communism, you know, when you have one kind of toilet paper and one kind oh, of, for sure. of for toothpaste. Sure. So for sure. uh, is it less of a monoculture than it was? Oh, in in Prague? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I would imagine. I, I wasn't in Prague during the Times of communism. <laughs> That's and right. It would have been a unique perspective if you had been. <laughs> yes. Why tell this story in graphic form? Well, I think the mind craves lots of different stimulation. So oftentimes reading a novel, the mind craves that. Sometimes you just want to watch something on Netflix and the mind craves that. And then the, the mind also really likes to see, to work in the comic form. It It's good stimulation and it hits you on a different level than reading or watching. Um, you sort of are doing both at the same time. You're, you're watching something and observing something and also reading. So I really think, and I read a lot of uh, graphic novels and a lot of comics. I think the form itself is, it's beautiful storytelling with the artistic touch of a, of a craftsperson. Yeah, it's so nice to finish the text and then really soak in the imagery. And and the artistry behind this makes me wonder if you think artists are the antidote to monoculture? Well, uh, I've been working with this idea. Uh, somebody planted this seed that art is resistance. And so I think that it might not be the antidote to a monoculture, but I think it's it's certainly um, should be kicking in the doors of, of anything comfortable. And so art as resistance, I think, is a, is a really something that I'm, I'm working with and trying to support. I want to just read a little bit of, of text before we go. This is you writing at the beginning of the graphic novel. The rattle, clack, hum, swaying of the cold steel train shakes my belly and head as I sweat out a bohemian-style hangover. It's so beat generation. It's so beat poet. Do you take do you take inspiration? From oh, I was beats? I was definitely influenced by the beats and and almost warped in the sense that <laughs> I thought that I had to sit down and and create spontaneous prose when I wrote. So it really limited me and I and I thought that I was so influenced by the beats that eventually I had to find my own style, but yeah, that those opening lines, and you read them very well, by the way. Thank you for the, oh, the cadence in that. You're welcome. You nailed that. Well, they inspired me, too, to a certain extent. How, <laughs> how can they not in Denver, which had such a beat culture? Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Daniel Landis owns the Denver restaurant Sidio City. He's also co-founder of the publishing company Suspect Press. His new graphic short story is called Revolt to What? That's the show for today. I'll be speaking with Governor John Hickenlooper later today, and that conversation will air tomorrow on Colorado Matters. Tune in. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.